good morning. Hey, Sergeant Robinson. Mr. Eddins, you won't believe what happened. What? I haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? I went TDY. Without me? That wasn't my decision, but I found out some new information about our favorite topic. Oh no, robot overlords again. More commonly known as artificial intelligence, but yes. Well, so where did you go? Pearl, Hugh, Herbert, Herbert. Fort Walton Beach, Florida, right? You went there without me? Again, not my decision. Yeah, so besides really cheap, gorgeous seafood and white sandy beaches, what else did you see? I got a chance to visit the Shoe Innovation Institute. What are you talking about? I'll let the director and the folks over at Hurlbert explain it in a bit, but Mr. Eddins? Oh, God. Here we go. Buckle up. You're about to get debriefed. Yo! They are waiting to debrief you. They are waiting to debrief you. Get to the debrief. Get some chow and head to the debrief. Get to the debrief. Get to the debrief. Get to the debrief. Get to the debrief. All right, so let's just rewind a little bit. The HSU, the Shoe Innovation Institute. So what do they have to do with the Air Force? While we were down there, we actually got to interview the AFSOC commander, Lieutenant General Jim Slife. I'll let him explain it a bit for you. Uh, the Shoe Innovation Institute, you know, that's a that's an interesting one. That's a locally at Hurlburt Field. Uh, one of the local business people is, is a fellow named Paul Shoe, and uh, Mr. Shoe has a very compelling life story. It's kind of the American dream. He was an immigrant from Taiwan, became a businessman in the United States. Didn't have, you know, didn't come from a family of wealth or anything, and built, you know, a number of businesses. Became very successful, and he wants to give back to to the country that adopted him, the United States. And so one of the ways uh, that he's done that is by founding this Innovation Institute. And we have engaged in a partnership with him where our airmen are allowed to go to this facility that's not, not too far away from Hurlburt. And they learn about things like coding and, and drones and AI. And they have this space, uh, additive manufacturing, you know, 3D printing, that type of thing. And airmen can go over there, learn these skills, and essentially solve problems that they may be dealing with in their own workplace. And so, you know, an airman says, you know, I've got this problem in my squadron and I want to be able to solve it. And we have some experts over at the SHU Institute that can help airmen learn the skills needed to go solve the problem inside their squadron. So, you know, it, it essentially is an empowering tool for our airmen to, to use modern technologies to solve their own problems. It's a really uh, fascinating case study in uh, public-private partnership. Okay, so that's a nice sound bite, very impressive, but where does the AFSOC commander fit into this puzzle? I'm glad you asked. As the AFSOC commander, Lieutenant General Slife is always on the lookout for new opportunities to use new technologies and innovative ways that help accomplish AFSOC's mission. The SHU Innovation Institute has a program called Code Mandos, which started in an intelligence squadron, but soon will partner with AFSOC to help streamline processes in their work centers as well. Okay, so that hits all the buzzwords in Air Force messaging, but what does that actually look like? 
To get a better idea of what that will look like, I'll let Lieutenant General Slife and two of the Code Mandos explain it to you. Code Mandos is a, is a neat little program that uh, some of our airmen have decided to start. And of course, at the headquarters at AFSOC, we've decided to get behind it and provide support and resourcing uh, to help them get that off the ground. But it, it's essentially, it, it started in, in an intelligence squadron. And these airmen in this intelligence squadron found themselves doing repetitive tasks. They were just, you know, there was no there, there was no analysis involved. They were just repetitively pointing and clicking on their computers, pointing and clicking, pointing and clicking. And uh, they said, surely there, there's a better way to do this. And so they essentially taught themselves how to code, uh, started off being uh, scripts and turned into apps uh, that they were coding that would allow them to automate many of the, these repetitive um, things that they were doing. And they really, really increased the efficiency of their of their workflow uh, in the intelligence squadron. And uh, so that has actually grown and, they, and they've gotten an app store. They're generating apps that, that actually automate or help them with the analytic tasks that they have. And, and we have now got behind them to help them actually teach that to other airmen in other squadrons that also wanna solve whatever whatever the problem is that they're dealing with in their squadron. And, and so, you know, it's kind of a takeoff of the term commandos, they're code mandos, and they're making life easier for a lot of airmen inside of AppSoc. Hi, my name is Greg Jewell. I am the innovation lead at the Love and Sois Intelligence Squadron. I'm also a technical lead for One Cell Innovation, their Spark Cell here. And then I also am the program director for Code Mandos, a program that we stood up out of 11 SOAS, and now we're trying to make a MAGCOM initiative. I was doing processes and tasks that were repeatable, took a long time, and I said, there's gotta be a better way. Well, I also happen to have a coding background. I have a computer science background, and I said, well, why don't I just make it myself? So I made this uh, application, and a lot of people started using it. And then finally, I made another application and it just continued like that, where I started bridging those gaps between our pain points. Uh, and finally, my commander said, okay, you're gonna do this full time. And as I started building more and more applications, I realized I needed help. And who better to pull from but than airmen who know the mission really well. The advantage of having somebody who knows the mission really well is you cut a lot of that development time down, where if traditionally, if I wanted to make an application, I would have to go find an outside vendor. They'd have to have the right clearances. They'd have to do a lot of inter user interviews. Airman already knows all those things, already has all the clearances. So I can just teach them how to code and then we can start developing apps literally within a day. Um, I have a Staff Sergeant uh, Peoples. He was one of our first code mandos. He barely knew how to code at all. And now he has job offers at Google. And he's built uh, a dozen different applications, has a lot of confidence in, in the products he's making. So. It's been pretty exciting. So I'm Jeremiah Peoples. I am a software developer over at the 11th Special Operations Intelligence Squadron, but I also work for Code Mandos as a program and course director. Um, Greg, the founder of Code Mandos, brought me in and taught me how to program. And two or three years later, I was exiting the military and I wanted to make sure that uh, I wasn't a unicorn and that our operations at the 11th SOAS could be replicated across the one SAO and hopefully the Air Force. So me and Greg got together and we figured out a way to make a boot camp for people interested in code, like just like I was, but offer it for free and uh, accessible to anyone on base or in the Air Force. 
So at the 11 Sois, we have created a lot of great apps in a very unique way. Um, and no one knows, I didn't know that you could create apps like that until I was creating apps like that. So spreading the word that it's possible to get started right now, today, um, I think is super important because there's a ton of people that we've seen in the community that are eager to get started programming, but they just don't know how, they don't know where to start. So empowering airmen in the uh, community, AFSOC, Air Force, to give them the tools and processes to make applications happen with the tools available to them today is close to my heart. So I understand their purpose is to streamline the processes, and but they work on super secret computers and they have all these complicated protocols. How are they allowed to make apps for those computers and what kind of apps are they making? Great question. While they have their own app store, they code by building a script. It's more secure than the apps you're thinking of, but I'll let the people who actually do the coding explain it a little better. I'll give you an example of our largest application. It's called Jeffrey. Basically what it does is it automates taking uh, data and information and displaying it on a map. That process took about 15 minutes. Now it takes less than five seconds. Additionally, it QCs or corrects mistakes that people were missing before. So not only is the data coming faster, but it's also coming more accurate and precise. And we've calculated, we had somebody come in and calculate that saves nine to $12 million in man hours every year, this application. So that's just one. Um, the other advantage, talking about return on investment and how this helps everybody is talking about the culture as well. Somebody comes in the hallway and says, hey, I'd love this application. Well, if I think that's a great idea, traditionally to acquire the vendors to create that, they wouldn't see that idea come to fruition or hear about it for months to years. Now we can have somebody say, hey, I've got an idea, and we actually made an application called Observation Deck, which is a feedback tool, and they'll see an application up that day, or they have a problem and we'll fix our application. Whereas we have programs of record that are broken and they remain broken for months to years. So that has actually encouraged more innovation and ideas because they're seeing return on their ideas and that feedback loop quicker. They got an idea and all of a sudden there's an app the next day. Or they got an idea and the application's been updated with their idea. So it's really helped that culture of innovation. There was just a lot of things that I was doing as an intelligence analyst that were super monotonous and super repetitive. Uh, one of the things was opening all of my mandatory programs that were required by um, by the book to have open. And that would take about five to six minutes a day and I would do that every single day. So that was one of the first applications that we created was an application to launch all of your mandatory programs. And that was super fun to be able to create an application, think about it, and then ship it to all my friends and coworkers could use that same application. So people would hear something like that and be like, you're lazy. Why couldn't you just open all the apps, right? <laughs> what does that do to like uh, the, the dread of having to open all of those apps? How does that weigh on you? And then how did it feel not having to do that task every day? Um, it was it was great. It was um, We actually look for people that are lazy. You said people think I'm lazy. And we look for those lazy people. Developers should be lazy because they should be looking for things that are repetitive and that could be automated and streamlined. So when I didn't have to do all those manual things, I kind of just sat back with my hands behind my head and just like, yeah, this is nice. This is cool. I got time back for myself to spend on other things like making sure I'm getting a proper changeover, making sure my uh, equipment's good to go. 
um, what would you say to people who are like, no, the airmen can just do it how they've always done it? Um, they could, but that's not going to be uh, progressive in any way. So they're going to stay where they're at right now. And I think the one of the beautiful things I've seen with the Air Force is that we're super into innovation and moving the, the meter to the right and pushing innovation. So more time to ensure a proper changeover. One application that saved 12 million in man hours and the ability to create applications without it getting caught up in a bunch of bureaucratic red tape. I know, Mr. Eddins. It brings a tear to my eye as well. It's too bad this is just going to get lost in the sauce at Hurlburt. I mean, you know, this could make a huge difference for the Air Force as a whole. It's closer to being an Air Force-wide thing than you think, Mr. Eddins. Let me guess, you'll get Staff Sergeant Peoples and Mr. Jewell to explain it to me again? I'll give you a little more background first. Lieutenant General Slife is a big champion for innovation within AFSOC and heard about the apps and changes code Mandos were able to implement in their squadron. So he actually set up a meeting with them to see what they could do for the rest of AFSOC and what funding and resources they would need to make that happen. So, I mean, it was exciting. Um, Greg and I have been trying to do this thing, but we didn't really know how. So when we heard that General Slife wanted to talk to us, we understood that this is probably our, our ticket, our key to get the proper backing to figure out how to scale Code Manos to be something great and not just something good for a few people. So I mean, it was it was a bit, I was a bit nervous, but I mean, I love talking to people. So I was just excited for him to be uh, asking for our audience so that we could just pitch him. And he was, it was an amazing uh, briefing. It was actually supposed to be a briefing, but he said he doesn't like briefs, so we just kind of shut our brief down. We just had a conversation of what do we need, what would we want, and where are we trying to take this organization. How refreshing was it that somebody would be that interested as to where like they don't need the PowerPoint presentation, they mm -hmm. don't need all the rigmarole, they just wanted you to explain it, and they were engaged. It was amazing, yeah. I can definitely tell that General Slife was on our side. He even told the story about how when he was a young lieutenant, he had to go to so many hoops just to do or change a lever on an aircraft, and he wanted to remove those uh, roadblocks for us in our Code Mandos operation. And he told that to his whole entire staff, the top five, and it was just great to have someone who was that high ranking be like the exact type of innovator that we aspire to be as Codemandos. Uh, if they go to codemandos.com, uh, it tells a little bit about what Codemandos is, where we started. It has my information and uh, certain people's contact information. And actually, now that we're a MagCom initiative, we're going to be bolstering our course offerings and the curriculum to be available not only on site, but also online. So then anybody who wants to get involved or reach out to us, uh, they can through that way and take some of those courses. Additionally, we're working on fellowships where you could come TDY out here for a week or two, and then you would return with an application, an MVP, which is minimal viable product. So if you contact myself or Staff Sergeant Peoples through the website, email, call, um, we can have you come out here or get you uh, in the right direction. So if they're already at a MAGCOM level initiative, the effects of this program must be bigger than just intelligence or spec ops. Like Staff Sergeant People said, they're looking for lazy people so they can teach them coding so they can streamline any kind of process. That could be aggregating data from personnelists or folks in finance or really any AFSC you can think of. Yeah, so, you know, streamlining things makes, you know, the day go faster. It can be beneficial in that way. But, you know, what impact is that going to have on a future fight? Future fight? 
The great power competition, you know, our mutually assured destruction at the hands of the robot overlords. Skynet is coming! It's not all doom and gloom, but I'm sure they're talking about it. We have had those conversations about our transition of our squadron because we're, we've done the counterintelligence, now we're doing the peer mission, right? So we're, me being part of innovation, we're looking five, 10 years out, and what does that look like? And in fact, the advantage of having a tactical software team is we've solved some of those things and we're now bringing them to industry partners to say, hey, we, this is what we want to do in the next five, 10 years. So we've shortened that gap between where we want to be and where we are by being able to code some of those solutions for those individuals. So we are thinking ahead. And in fact, we have um, an application called Pedestal coming out. So we've been lucky in the past where we had some cell here stateside providing all this information to individuals downrange and then they created their own products. Well, that's gone away. So now we only have a couple individuals there and a lot of individuals stateside. So we're transitioning to where back here stateside, we get all this intelligence and data, we build a product for them and then they're able to make very poignant decisions based on that. So with that, now that we have access to more data, we need to be able to run data analytics on that, right? So you need to have more powerful applications and capability to harness all that data. And so that's what we're doing with Pedestal. So I wanna give you more poignant information so then you as the analyst can understand that and get away from the menial task of moving that data around. An application can do that, now you can do your job really well. Is that like kind of to the point of airmen and machine teaming? Yes. Well, the phases of Pedestal we want is, right now we've got some AI and the analysts are using that AI to make decisions. Now we want to have that AI and machine learning making those decisions and then based on algorithms and we just verify those decisions. So then we're together, right? We want the end user not to be able to tell, was it a machine that made, that made this uh, piece of information or was it an individual who just verified that? And that's what we're moving to. So this is the technology that's going to be used in the great power competition, but it's all digital. Not exactly. The shoe also houses a fabrication flight of sorts. They have a woodworking shop, a drone flying program, and a 3D printing section. So how is that going to aid in the next fight? Accelerating change isn't just about contributing directly to the war effort. It's also about helping streamline processes taking place at home station. Take the drone flying program, for instance. It's made it possible for civil engineers to conduct roof inspections using drones instead of having to go up in a cherry picker, which is cumbersome, time consuming, and always poses a risk to safety of personnel. By using drones to look for and take pictures of damage, they are now able to meet the annual requirement of inspecting every single roof at Hurlburt Field, which was impossible before. This makes the process more efficient and would theoretically allow them to get the repairs contracted out more quickly. So, theoretically? Theoretically, because of the red tape surrounding how contracts for repairs are bid on and the lengthy process that is required to fund those contracts. Ah, uh, bureaucracy. Exactly. But these are the changes that Accelerate Change or Lose is calling for airmen to get after. Yeah, I understand how that fits into the puzzle, but how can 3D printing help with the great power competition? 
in a variety of ways. The first instance was the 3D printing folks working with the local community to mass produce face shields at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Since then, they've been able to work with other squadrons and units on multiple projects, but I'll let the experts explain it further. My name is Timothy Simino. I am the Wing Program Manager of Continuous Process Improvement, and I work with the One Cell Innovation Cell to promote innovative processes throughout the wing. So the 3D printing is very, very good at saving resources while doing prototyping, trying things out. It gives us a little bit of wiggle room with trial and error with design work because rather than making something out of metal, which can take hours and cost materials that are exorbitantly expensive, especially during things like last year's pandemic, we can instead use maybe a few cents worth of plastic in a few hours where it's all automated and doesn't require an operator to continuously be working with it. And we can produce prototypes for pennies on the dollar. And then once we get that worked out to where, yes, this product is exactly what we need, then we can take it to a machine shop or use our CNC machines or welding and actually make it into the real world. So how was that applicable during the pandemic? So during the pandemic, we had a supply chain shortage for personal protective equipment for medical personnel. At the time, I wasn't with the Innovation Cell, but I volunteered with the SHU Foundation and we started um, Okaloosa Fighting COVID, which was an initiative to produce personal protective equipment for local area hospitals. We ended up expanding out from there and we donated to several hospitals uh, throughout the country as well as abroad. I think in total, we personally produced 6,000 face shields along with uh, 6,000 ear protectors. They were little bands that went behind your head to keep the mask bands from touching your ears. So a total of 12,000 items. We also coordinated our efforts because we had this turned into a full manufacturing kind of warehouse at the time where we were sanitizing equipment. And we also coordinated with the Maryland governor's office to kind of help them expand out and do similar operations with local colleges as well as the Texas Department of Health. So we definitely collaborated with a lot of different agencies, um, both state and local governments. And it was just a really, uh, really good use of modern technology to kind of help out during a pretty, pretty significantly bad time for a lot of people that were struggling to get that just due to um, a lot of traveling and movement being halted at the time. So we talked earlier a little bit about um, having a safe environment for people to fail forward. Um, and so with that, like how important was that in creating the facials? And being able to scrap an idea and start over or make a different kind of prototype. Oh, it was it was completely necessary for us to be able to do that. We were trying to kind of go in with CPI, which is reducing waste, reducing errors, and making things as efficient and effective as possible. We went through not only our design work to make sure that we were able to print them quickly, but also print them effectively. 3D printing takes hours and hours and hours. And so we eventually worked it out to where we had a proper design that was not only easy for us to print in mass, but also easy for our team of assemblers to put them face shields together because we had to buy acrylic that would bend and um, actually serve as the face piece that is not capable of being 3D printed. So we made the brackets for the plastic that was then cut out. And so kind of searching for the best design that was quick enough to print out, but also comfortable for the wearer who's going to be wearing it potentially for hours if they're working in an ER during a pandemic. And so going through all those design changes and really fleshing out how to best go about it, I believe we ended up working it out to where we could produce, um, I believe, 20 face shields at a time. And we timed it just right to where it took 24 hours. So when we were at our peak production, we had, I believe, nine printers running simultaneously. And we would come by once a day, hit go, 
And then the next day we'd come by, take off the print, restart it again, and we had it on a running rotation every 24 hours to produce as many as possible. Yeah, that's amazing. We saw a board over there that had the different prototypes on it. Yeah. How's that for the kids who are in that room to see that and be able to see the different iterations that you guys had to go through to get a successful and well-used model? So I think for the kids, it really demonstrates um, just the basic scientific method, going through trial by error and to kind of demonstrate that, you know, it's not a it's not a turnkey operation. There was a lot of work. A lot of people took part in Okaloosa fighting COVID and a lot of collaboration. And I think kind of showing that we keep that up there for that purpose is to show the kids that are coming here to learn STEM concepts that, yes, you can fail and that's part of the process. You, you make mistakes, you learn from them and you improve from that failure and you keep going until you succeed. So with kids, it might be easier to instill that in there. How do you get through that message through the airmen? So with airmen, I think it's more of just the success story that we have within the innovation cell. You know, the drone flying program, um, our spreader bars that we've made for the fuel cell tanks on CB-22s, all of our successes kind of tell a story. And I think it it's really important to not just overshadow and look at the end result, but look at the process that went through to create that end result. Because none of these projects were anything close to easy for us to accomplish. It's always finding out the best way to do something or dealing with, oh, there's this bureaucratic red tape or how do we get our way to that end result? The drone program, for example, took, I believe, 18 months to finally get to where we were actually flying drones. And so I think kind of showing that, yes, the process may be lengthy and yes, it may have some hurdles to go through, but at the end result, the successes at the end make everything worth it. And so to kind of be able to show the airmen that, to show our younger guys that yes, you can get change, you will have to put in work for it, but at the end of the day, that end success is gonna make it worth it. Uh, so the fuel spreader, uh, what is that? How did that come about? So that came about via a, it was two deployed airmen uh, from the fuel cell shop, and they had this issue where the fuel tanks would be damaged internally. There was no mechanism in place to perform a repair action on them, and so they had to scrap these $50,000 fuel tanks. And it wasn't so much the monetary aspect, it was the fact that they were in a deployed environment and with getting things out there, it would cause them to lose hours and days of sortie hours because they were waiting on a new part to come in. So they fabricated with kind of um, just scrounged parts, this um, expanding bar that was able to apply pressure, allowing them to put in a patch at the top of this fuel cell tank so that they could do a repair action rather than simply throwing it away. So for them, I don't think it was so much, the airmen in the, in the desert who were deployed, I don't think it was so much the monetary value that was their uh, motivation. It was the fact they wanted to get the plane back in the air. When they got back to the States, then it became a matter of the monetary value. And that's why they submitted the idea, I believe for 2019 uh, Spark, or Spark Tank. So they submitted the idea and I don't believe they got first, but they got a green light anyways to proceed with it. And so AFRL assisted our innovation cell to make a 3D printed prototype and then we got a manufacturer to start making them. And every time that tool is used, it saves the Air Force approximately $50,000. So where do you come into that process? Where I mainly come in is ensuring that we have the manufacturing capacity via additive manufacturing. So maintaining the 3D printers, ensuring that they're in working order. And when we get designs that are viable, I can 3D print them and actually produce them for prototyping and testing. Okay. Could you talk more about the C-130 part and then the armors? Sure. So the C-130 bracket is related to an armored um, I'm not going to say a defect, however, the AC-130J armor in the flight deck, 
Oftentimes gets kicked forward during flight and it will uh, rip the yoke boot out. The yoke is uh, what the pilot uses to steer the aircraft. The problem with that boat, that yoke being ripped out is that it leaves a FOD hazard where pieces of metal or other foreign objects can fall down into that cavity where your flight controls are, which as you can imagine, if there's linkages and stuff you don't want to be impeded by an, a foreign object in there, you really don't want it getting in there. So every time that yoke boot gets ripped, the yoke boot itself is only $100, but the inspection that follows it is usually six to 12 hours. So by preventing that armor from sliding forward and ripping the yoke boot out, we save not only $100 per yoke, per yoke boot, but we also save around six to 12 hours every instance that it occurs. And based on the tracking we got from just the 73rd AMU here at Herbert Field, they were losing about one to two yoke boots per month. And even then that problem is not just specific to Herbert Field, that problem exists on every C-130. Uh, going through the 3D printing process. So initially the airmen took measurements of the yoke boot to figure out what size the bracket needed to be to fit there, the best shape for it. He gave me those dimensions. I converted it into a 3D image via CAD software. We took that, we 3D printed it, brought it out to the aircraft, made sure that it fit and made sure that it served its purpose and actually prevented the armor from moving forward. Once we got a design in the 3D printing sphere kind of established, so we went through, I believe, four different iterations of it with 3D printing. Once we got the final version kind of fleshed out, we brought it to the metals tech shop at Herbert Field and had to manufacture it with aircraft grade aluminum so it's safe for flight. And they were able to give us a cost estimate of about $36 for the entire fleet. So for $36 for the entire fleet at Herbert Field of C-130s, we were able to stop all of this. I know that that's exciting, but is it kind of infuriating too to know that this could have been done so long ago? Oh, it's, it certainly is. And uh, we're actually still going through the approval process to get it used on AC-130s. We ran into issues with um, a couple of the engineers at uh, Warner Robins kind of not feeling comfortable with it so we're actually elevating it currently to the AFRL to um, kind of give a green light for it and do a little bit more thorough investigating and to make sure that it's truly safe for flight. It's it's an annoyance but it's a necessary one because at the end of the day any modification to the aircraft could be jeopardizing to the air crew and members that are on the aircraft so while it is a little annoying to have to go through those delays it's ultimately down to human life so. So that's an important thing to remember. Even with all the calls to innovate faster and clear red tape, it has to be safe and reliable, which of course is, you know, multifaceted, lots of layers. Well, isn't it as simple as making sure the new tech we're implementing isn't putting human lives at risk or adding unnecessary risks? Well, on the one hand, but the Air Force also has to account for factors that go way beyond the regular duty day. The enterprise as a whole has a say in each airman's quality of life. Uh, quality of life, job satisfaction, all those things play a big role in retention, which can negatively or positively impact the entire Air Force. How can innovation hinder retention? Well, let's look at Staff Sergeant Peoples for a second. He was very motivated to code to make his quality of life better, but now he's getting out of the Air Force and he's gonna use his skills in the private sector. True. But Mr. Jewell did just the opposite. He came from the private sector and chose to work with the Air Force full time. Yeah, but as a civilian. So did you. Where is this going, Mr. Eddins? I'm getting there. So how do you inspire airmen to innovate and stay in the Air Force when 
their quality outside of the Air Force can sometimes be astronomically better. Oh, by ensuring they have job satisfaction. Yeah, exactly. Now we're talking. Lieutenant General Slife talked a bit about that when he mentioned multi-capable airmen, but for a better perspective on why Staff Sergeant Peoples specifically is getting out, Mr. Breeze and I asked him and Mr. Jewell. Wait, Breezy went with you to Hurlburt? I've told you that wasn't my decision. I'm just a staff sergeant, sir. All right, just press play, please. So when we uh, come in the door, we always take, uh, take our rank off. So it doesn't matter if I'm talking to a general, a colonel, major, airman. Everyone's addressed the same way, uh, first name only. And that's so that the most highest ranking idea doesn't win, but the best idea wins. And it just promotes a... Uh, a community of collaboration and being comfortable, which is something I'm not really accustomed to or wasn't accustomed to uh, coming off an ops floor from a standard Air Force job. But uh, rolling into that where everyone is on a first name basis and we're all trying to be as innovative as possible is super refreshing. There is the notion that there's a frozen middle and you said coming off an ops floor. Did you ever see uh, like this frozen middle where you had great ideas and it just kind of stopped at middle management? Um, so for my organization particularly, we tried to get rid of that frozen middle, as you put it, um, because we understand that a lot of the best ideas are going to come from the airmen themselves. So we created actually a feedback tool to where they can tell us, hey, we need this app. It would be cool if we have this. It's honestly like a, a dream sheet for people on the ops floor for us. And that right there, it uh, gets rid of our frozen middle because you can see what are the needs of the airmen and you can see what's most valuable and that's the things we like to tackle. And what's it been like having uh, Sergeant Peebles around? Sergeant Peebles, he's given me perspective, that younger perspective. He makes me feel old. Uh, he, we, he actually went TDY and went to a called Section 31 for Kessel Run. Kessel Run has been a, a popular innovation uh, software factory. And he came back and taught me a couple things because now he knows agile development and all those industry uh, methods and practices. So he's been instrumental in kind of keeping me aligned and actually speeding up development because we're able to track and do things that I hadn't even thought of before. If I could ask like a little off topic thing. Sure. What does that say about uh, like Air Force retention? Um, that he would be able to do whatever he wants to do kind of in this job, but choose to go work. That, that is a soapbox issue for me where I, I think it's tough to hold talent where they're making triple, double, double, triple, quadruple what they would make here. So you need other incentives. I think it has helped him uh, enjoy and appreciate the military more because he's seen kind of that coding side and been able to branch out. I think if I would have got him earlier in his career, he might have stayed in if he had this opportunity earlier. But yeah, we definitely need to give every airman, whether it be coding or something else, opportunities to grow. Because once, once it becomes a financial issue, it's more autonomy and that sense of purpose. So if we can't help them in the financial, right, we're not gonna be able to compete with them. We need to give them that autonomy and that sense of purpose. Uh, and I think we'd be able to retain more airmen. So you're the director, right? Yes. So some of those times it can be a little stressful, um, but what makes you excited to come to work? Oh, I love coming to work every day. I, I love that we have diverse individuals that are participating and we don't cater to just one industry. Um, it is an environment that creates an elevated expectation for each individual to bring something forward that will benefit everyone. We have um, an interesting opportunity because 
Nowhere that we've seen it before has there been this much cross-community involvement in problem solving and taking on new challenges. And so it's a challenge, but it's exciting to, to bring everyone together and start working on some things. As Dr. Shu puts it, he says, if you like what we're doing, roll up your sleeves. And that has a lot to do with the mentality that is here. And with that kind of mentality in mind, like what's it like having the Air Force here and getting to participate in being innovative in the future fight? I think that it allows us to feel closer with our service members. We understand better what they're facing and um, are able to be part of empowering them. A lot of the members of our community have some connection with the military in relation to whether they have a family member that retired or served, um, or it's a parent or a, a neighbor that is, um, that is serving. But to understand what they are doing every day in relation to um, solving the world's problems, it, it takes on a, a different spirit. There's a lot of young people that are inspired by mentorship from the service members here, and they are looking at their options to serve. And so we just feel like this is a great opportunity to uh, open the doors of our, of our local installations, bring out some of those talented individuals and, and let them converge with the community on um, solving some problems for the future. Wait, whose voice was that? That's the director of the SHU Innovation Institute, Amanda Negron. When we interviewed her, you could really get a sense that even though her job was stressful and sometimes chaotic, she really enjoys the work. That must be nice. Be careful, Mr. Eddins. Your cynicism is showing. Yeah, that comes with the gray beard. But, you know, honestly, I think airmen join the Air Force for a myriad of reasons, but they really only leave before retirement for three really good ones. Oh? What are those reasons? So I think that a lot of airmen have the feeling that no one truly cares about them. And secondly, I think that, you know, they want greater opportunities to grow. And then the third reason is by far the most important, that they need to have the ability to cut and run when the robot overlords decide to make their move. Someone please cut the recording off. We'd like to thank the airmen and civilians at Herbert Field, Florida, and the SHU Innovation Institute for letting us tell a part of their story. The Debrief is a production of Airmen Magazine, located at Defense Media Activity Headquarters, Fort Meade, Maryland. You can see more of Airmen Magazine's content at airmanmagazine.af.mil, or search for us on Divids, Facebook, Instagram, iTunes, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and consider yourself briefed.